0: I pray that you would enable us this day to glory in that reality, that one with you, we cannot die. How is that possible? And what should that implication have for us today? God, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would enable us to understand the glory of the resurrection this morning as we dive into your word. We pray it all in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. One with himself, I cannot die. We cannot die because Jesus, who did die, did not stay dead, but rose from the dead, conquering death, conquering sin, conquering the grave. We cannot die. That's the reason we celebrate today. That's the truth that we celebrate. That's the joy that we have, the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. I think because of the season that we are in today with the coronavirus, with this pandemic that is happening, it's especially appropriate for us to think about and to consider death. It's staring us right in the face. We see the news and the devastation that the coronavirus is causing. We see it worldwide. It is right in front of us. We stare at what's happening. Death is looking us in the face. We don't like to think about death very often. We don't like to think about it. We try to hide it away. In fact, death has really been changed from uh, people dying in our homes to dying in hospitals. We have amazing medical advancements that that extend the life way longer than it used to be. We can feel practically invincible and that's why I believe though the destruction of the coronavirus is real and it is devastating and it is bad, it's a good thing for us to be reminded of death, of our mortality. Time flies and in the end we all die. 100%. Of people die. Listen to this little poem by Henry Twelves. It's called Time's Paces. When I was a child, I laughed and wept. Time crept. When as a youth I dreamt and talked, time walked. When I became a full grown man, time ran. When older still I daily grew, time flew. Soon I shall be traveling on. Time gone the average lifespan Uh, a few years ago was 77 years old. Now it's about 78 and a little bit. But for our calculations, a few years ago, 77 years old is the average lifespan. Just listen to how much time. If you were to live to the age of 77, listen to how much time you have left. If you are 15 years old, you have 22,630 days left. Or to put that into months, you have 744 months left before you die. If you're 25 years old, you have 624 months left before you die. If you're 35 years old, you have 504 months left. 45 years old, you have 384 months left. 55 years old, you have 264 months left. 65 years old, you have 144 months left. And 75 years old, you only have 24 months left. All of us will die. And we we do not know the day that our death is coming. So the question is, how can we have comfort in this life? How can we have hope in this life if we know that death is staring us in the face and there's no way we can avoid it? How can we have comfort? How can we have hope? The Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1563, Catechism is just a a fancy word for a book of questions and answers to help teach the truths of Scripture. The Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563 opens with this very question. What is our only comfort and hope in life and in death? I love this question because any comfort in life that does not also comfort you in your death is truly no comfort at all. We need comfort in life and in death. What can comfort us in both? If the object of our hope cannot stand up to what death is, means, what death destroys, then it truly offers no hope and comfort in this life. Death helps frame this question. What is our only hope and comfort in life and in death? The answer that the Catechism gives is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with His precious blood, and He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. That is a blessed answer, and I believe that the Apostle Paul would say amen and amen to that answer. I believe he said it many places in the Scriptures very, very similar to that exact answer. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to turn to one of those places where Paul answers what is our hope in life and in death. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And while you're turning there to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let me just tell you a little bit about this beautiful letter. Paul planted this little church in Corinth, and shepherded it for about 18 months. And a few years later, he had to move on on his third missionary journey. He left to go to Ephesus, but he sent Timothy back to Corinth to check on them, to answer their questions, to see how they were doing. Uh, in, In another letter, our letter that we have in our Bibles, 1 Corinthians, is technically 2 Corinthians because Paul wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians. We just don't have it. And in that letter, he apparently explained the gospel to this church in Corinth and answered very simple, basic questions about the gospel. And then this church grew up in the gospel, founded in Jesus Christ. They grew up and then they realized they had more questions about how to live life, how to live life in light of Jesus and his precious gospel. So that's why Paul wrote this letter. In fact, from chapter 7 on through the remainder of this book, Paul is going to answer specific questions. Chapter 7 starts just answering questions about the question you had about such and such, about this question, about this question. When it comes to chapter 15, Paul is answering a question based on what happens when we die. The, The Corinthian church was wondering what happens when we die. They thought, the Corinthian, the Corinthian church thought, that once they died, their bodies would remain in the ground forever. Soul departs to be with Jesus, but their body, who cares about that, right? This is kind of a Gnostic way of looking at our bodies. Bodies are bad, matter is evil, uh, spirit is good, so spirit goes on to live forever, but our bodies just die, decay, they remain in the ground, and we never get a glorified physical body ever again. That's why Paul writes to say, whoa, you are gravely mistaken because, and he starts in chapter 15. We looked at this a few years ago uh, in chapter 15 on Easter Sunday at our church. We looked at Paul saying, if people are not raised, if human bodies are not raised from the dead, then that means Jesus, because he had a human body, he won't be raised from the dead. And if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then we are still in our sins. The faith that we have in him is in vain. Good Friday is amazing only if Jesus has raised from the dead. If Jesus is still in the tomb, then we have no hope, we have no confidence, because he is still experiencing the punishment that we deserve for sins. He has to conquer that punishment at the cross by paying the price with his life, and then at the tomb by destroying the tomb, by conquering death, by destroying death once and for all. So Paul says, no, people have been raised. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. This is a fact, historically provable fact and therefore you and I will be raised as well. He goes on to describe what's going to happen when we, go, when we die. He goes on to describe what happens at the resurrection. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the longest chapter in all of the epistles of the New Testament. It's because Paul is setting out to correct their thinking. The gospel is Contingent upon the resurrection. Without the resurrection, our faith is useless. We like to say it this way at CBC if Jesus has not been raised, then nothing matters at all. If Jesus hasn't been raised, nothing matters. But if Jesus has been raised, nothing else matters other than Christ's resurrection. So, verses 50 through 58, once he gets to the end of this section, talking about death, talking about the resurrection, Paul is going to end it with just the most victorious, overwhelmingly majestic section in this paragraph in verses 50 through 58. And in it, he's going to give us three resurrection realities, three realities that are only made possible because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And they are realities that you and I can glory in today because of the work of Jesus. Let's read these verses together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. Now I say this, brethren. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, we we need to know what these verses mean for us today. We we can see them with our eyes. We can understand them with our, our fleshly minds. But we can't comprehend supernaturally, spiritually, what you desire for us to comprehend unless your spirit opens our eyes to see it. God, we need to see it. Or else we will walk in this life as those who have no hope. We might claim to have hope, but functionally, we will live as if life is just vanity. God, we need to see. So Holy Spirit, we pray as we pray every Sunday. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Open our eyes to see the resurrected Christ. Open our eyes to the glory in these words on this page of Holy Scripture. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our resurrected Savior. Amen. Three resurrection realities. Number one, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we will be raised as well. Because Jesus has been raised, we will be raised. Because Jesus has been raised, we will be raised. Raise. This is verses 50 through 53. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Paul has said so much, that's why he says, summing it all up. Now I say all of what I've said to tell you a triumphal ending to everything that I've already told you. Flesh and blood, this physical composition, this physical makeup, our bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Our bodies are amazing. They're incredible, but they cannot go to heaven the way that they are. We have a condition that does not allow us to enter heaven with these bodies. We are a people that are so concerned with our physical makeup, whether it's just every form of lotion that you could possibly have to make your skin look a certain way, or every gym membership with every piece of equipment in a gym that you could buy. Obviously, neither of those you can tell I have ever really used, but these things we use in our lives to try and elongate our life, to try and make our physical makeup better. And it's not wrong to take good care of our bodies. In fact, if you are a believer, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, so you should take care of your body. But this can't go there. This won't work there. Regardless of the condition in which we keep ourselves, this body cannot go there. It's just not suitable. That's why Paul says it cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We understand suitability, right? There are things that have to be happening in order for you to participate in something. Think of uh, sports. Think of professional sports, major league sports, You cannot play in the game unless you're wearing the correct attire, the right uniform. Think of a wedding. You shouldn't be going to a wedding wearing board shorts and a t-shirt, especially if you're the groom, right? There is a suitable way to dress for a wedding. You can't go to the moon without an astronaut's suit or else you will die. We understand suitability. So how much more... Does heaven require a change in us? These bodies can't go there. You might ask, why can't these bodies go there? Well, two reasons. Number one, because of sin. Sin resides in our bodies. As R.C. Sproul says, our bodies are incapable of coping with the glory of God. You remember so many times in the Bible, God will show just a, a sliver of His glory to people. And He says, if I were to show you the whole thing, you would die. If I were to show you everything, you would die. He has to cover himself from Moses, just show a little bit of his glory, throw him into the cleft of the rock. So if we were to stand in the presence of God in heaven with the fullness of his holiness and his glory on display, we would be incinerated with these bodies. Sin cannot dwell in heaven. So we need new bodies that have no more sin. That's called glorified bodies. Reason number two that we need a new body is because we have, as Paul says, perishable bodies. We have bodies that die. We have bodies that get creakier and and achier and things start to fall out or fall off and we start to fall over. You must have a new body that doesn't have any of those problems if you're going to go to heaven. You can extend your life as much as you possibly can, but at some point your body will fail. Even Methuselah, the oldest person to live, 969 years old, died. And 969 years is just the front step of the porch of all of eternity. You can't last in heaven with this body. So Paul says, we need a new body. He says, verse 51, "'Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed.'" I personally think this would be a perfect verse for uh, our nursery, right? This is the theme verse of babies. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. This is their theme verse. Behold, I tell you, a mystery. Behold, pay attention to this, Paul says. I'm going to tell you a mystery. This isn't mystery like Sherlock Holmes mystery. This is uh, a Greek word that means something that was concealed, but now has been revealed. We didn't really understand what was happening, but now because of Jesus' resurrection, we understand what's happening. We're not all going to sleep, Sleep is the most common word used in the New Testament to refer of a believer dying. That's just sleep. It's a metaphor for death, and it is a perfect metaphor for death. You think of uh, my kids. We got season passes to SeaWorld last year, and we would go drive down the 5 to SeaWorld. We'd spend the whole day there, just walking all over the place, exhausted, sun shining brightly. We'd get into the car as the sun was going down, and we'd drive home. And when we got home, our kids are just passed out in the car, just exhausted. They've fallen asleep as we drove home on that five freeway back home. They were sleeping. They had their eyes open in the car right as we leave SeaWorld, And then they close their eyes and the next time that they open their eyes, they're in their rooms. It's exactly what happens to us when we fall asleep in Jesus. We close our eyes in this life and then before we know it, we open our eyes in the next life in a different place. My kids had very little experience of the transportation from SeaWorld to home. The sleep was pretty much a non-existent experience for them. In the strong, loving, kind, gracious arms of their parents, you guys have experienced this. If you're a mom or a dad, you slowly, carefully take them out of their harnesses, out of their seatbelts, make sure that they don't wake up. And if they do, you say, you need to wake up because you're going right back to sleep. And you pick them up and you move them and you don't want them to to wake up. They just move slowly from their car seats to their beds. So too, our Heavenly Father will do the exact same thing. He's going to move us from this life to the next. Death is like sleep with nothing to fear for those who trust in Jesus. Paul says, we're not all going to sleep because there are going to be some who remain alive. We're not all going to die as believers because some will remain alive, whether at the rapture or at the second coming of Jesus. So not everybody's going to die in this life, but ultimately everyone, we all will be changed we have to be changed. We're all going to be changed and we have to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Moment, that, that's a Greek word where we get our word atom from. The smallest unit of measurement that they could possibly conceive of. This just in, a, in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, it's going to happen. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and we will be changed. We will be changed because Jesus was changed. His physical body died, and He took upon Himself a glorified body that was changed. We will be changed. The second, resurrection reality. Not only will we be changed because Jesus has been raised from the dead, number two, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, death itself is destroyed. Because Jesus has been raised, death has been destroyed. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26 says that death is our enemy. Death is an enemy. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 say this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, Jesus Christ, also partook of flesh and blood, that through death, Jesus might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might, listen to this, free those who through fear of death we're subject to slavery all of their lives. We are subject to slavery and death. No matter what we do, no matter how much we try, we have no control over death. It's still coming for us. Death is a kind of slavery because there's nothing we can do about death. We tend to view life as a kind of savings account where we are. Looking to the the future, the promises of of new assets coming our way, whether it's new relationships or, or a better job or a better house or a better anything. We just think of it, it's going to be better as we grow older. But in reality, life works the exact opposite. It's a savings account in reverse. You're spending down, not saving up. And everything that we have will one day be lost. Is there anything in life, in our experience, that exposes our utter helplessness, our powerlessness, as much as death does? There's nothing in life that exposes that, like death. Death is a preacher. The grim reaper bears and brings a message. And I want you to listen to the message of the Grim Reaper, because if you don't listen to the message of death, then the resurrection has no power. The resurrection has no glory. If you don't see what the resurrection conquers, then you don't understand how glorious it is. Listen to the message of death. R.L. Dabney, who was a Southern Presbyterian in the 1800s, Uh, wrote a biography of Stonewall Jackson, did a bunch of different things. He was a pastor. He was also, started a seminary. He's a seminary professor and he pastored a church. In 1853, just before things were starting to ramp up in the Civil War, he lost two of his sons to diphtheria only two weeks apart from each other. Two of his sons, young sons, to diphtheria only two weeks apart from each other. He had to watch his boys suffer and die And he wrote these words in a letter to his brother about his first son, whose name was Bobby, about his death. Bobby grew worse on Sunday when his symptoms became alarming and then he passed away after great sufferings on Monday. He was intelligent to the end, even after he became speechless, and his appealing looks to us and the physician would have melted a stone. A half hour before he died, he sank into a deep sleep which became more and more quiet until he gently sighed his soul away. This is the first death we've had in our family and my first experience of any great sorrow. And I've learned rapidly in the school of anguish this week and I'm many years older than I was a few days ago. It was not so much that I could not give up my darling, but that I saw him suffer such pangs and then fall under the grasp of that cruel destroyer while I was impotent for his help. Not even two weeks later, his second son, Jimmy, passed away of the same disease in the exact same way. And Dabney wrote these words about standing over their graves at their funeral. Listen to what he said. Oh, when the mighty wings of the angel of death nestle over your heart's treasures and his black shadow broods over your home, it shakes the heart with a shuddering terror and a horror of great darkness. To see my little ones ravaged and crushed and destroyed, turning their beautiful liquid eyes to me and his weeping mother for help after his gentle voice could no longer even be heard and to feel myself as helpless to give him any aid, this tears my heart with anguish. And as I stood by their graves to think of the poor ruined clay within that was a few days ago so beautiful, it makes my heart bleed. My friends, death is an enemy. It takes and takes and takes and it only leaves pain and devastation. It is an enemy. And so my question is, how are we to live with this? This is not okay. How are we to live with death? What are we to think of this? Well, listen to R.L. Dabney. He does not end there. His heart is bleeding as he sees the graves of his sons. But he says this, but I ask, where is the soul whose beams gave that clay all of their preciousness and beauty? And as I ask, I triumph. Because it's already begun. Instant voices praising my Savior. They are in Christ's heavenly house under His guardian love. And now I feel as never before the blessedness of the redeeming grace and the divine blood which has ransomed my poor babies from all of the sin and death which they inherited through me." R.L. Dabney triumphs, and we will triumph as well. Death is an ugly and hideous enemy. It's an intruder in this world. But according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, death no longer has a sting or a victory over us. Jesus has conquered death. And because he has triumphed, we will triumph. How will we triumph? In verse 54, Paul tells us this perishable will have put on imperishable. This mortal will have put on immortality. And in that moment, then will come about the same. Death is swallowed up in victory. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Don't miss the irony of those words from Isaiah 25. Death's appetite itself is never satisfied. It just keeps taking and taking and taking. It devours everything from everyone. But Jesus has swallowed up death forever. Death is an imposter. It's wielded by an enemy. Though it is an imposter, it's wielded by an enemy who has been conquered. And there we, therefore we don't have to fear death. Then Paul quotes Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Death's stinger is removed, so there is no more pain. That's Hosea 13. Verse 14, in the words of John Owen, this is the death of death in the death of Christ. R.C. Sproul says it this way, for the believer, death does not have the last word. It never does. Death has surrendered to the conquering power of the one who was resurrected as the firstborn of many brethren. That's why we sang the song earlier, come behold the wondrous mystery. What a foretaste of deliverance. Jesus was raised, so we know we're gonna be raised too, and death will not be able to hold us. He tasted death so that we don't have to ever worry about being held by it. Our problem is death. Jesus' promise is victory over death. For believers, we don't have to fear death. Why? Why don't we have to fear death? Look at what Paul says in verse 56 The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Three elements in that one verse we've got death, we've got sin. We've got the law, but we normally experience them in reverse. Paul's going to say the sting of death, the sin, the power of sin is the law. But flip it around. That's how we experience what Paul's talking about. We experience the law. We all have a conscience that tells us whether we've done right or wrong. We all have felt shame. We've felt guilt. We all know that we've done things that are wrong. We have broken the law, and therefore we are sinners. We are sinners. We are lawbreakers. We've broken God's law. And the penalty for breaking God's law is death. These three elements, we experience them this way. We understand the law. We come across the law. We break the law. That's sin. And because of our sin, we deserve death. We all will die. Some people really want to kick against that, as if that's unfair. But you and I know reasonably, logically, this is how we experience everyday life. There's consequences to our actions. If I am speeding on the freeway, going faster, than the law has said I have broken the law, and therefore, if I'm caught, I will be given a penalty, a consequence. Everything in life has this. There's a standard. If we fall short of that standard, there will be a consequence. If I'm going to get a ticket from a cop, because I sped and I broke the law, I'm going to have to pay a fine. That's for breaking a governmentally laid out law. How much more so am I going to have to experience punishment by breaking God's law? If I were to take a key and go to a junkyard and key the side of a car, just draw a line in it with a key, nobody's really going to care. If I take that same key and I go to one of your cars and I key the side of your car, you're going to have words for me. You're going to say, excuse me, why would you do that? What's going on? And please uh, help pay the costs of fixing it. If I take that same key and, and I key the limousine that the president drives in, If I key the the car, the Ferrari, or Lamborghini of a famous actor or actress, I might make it into the news because of my egregious actions. Time out. It's the exact same action. I key a car in a junkyard, I key one of your cars, and I key the car of the President of the United States. Same action. Why are we going to have different experiences of consequences and penalties? It's because... The penalty doesn't just fit the crime, but it fits who you have committed the crime against, who you have disobeyed, who you have offended. And therefore, it only makes sense that if we were to key God's house, as it were, in heaven, to take a key of our sin against His holiness and to mar it and to mark it and to say, I wish that I made the laws, I wish I was God and you were not well then of course our punishment is going to be equal to his character and who he is and his nature and his nature is infinite and therefore our punishment will be infinite as well. That's why Paul says death holds a sting because inside of death is the promise that you will be judged for breaking God's law. What gives sin the power to destroy us all is the law. The law says, Do this and you will live. And we have all failed, and so we will all die. The soul who sins will die, Ezekiel says. And it will always go this way for every single person. Law, sin, death. Law, sin, death. An unbreakable chain. Law, sin, death. And we cry out, Who can break this chain? I can never go back to being perfect. I've broken the law and I'm going to die and I deserve punishment. Who can break this chain? My favorite Easter quotation that I read every single Easter Sunday sums it up well. The corpse of Jesus just lay there in the silence of that cave. By all appearances, it had been tested. It had been tried, and it had been found wanting. If you'd been there to pull open Jesus' bruised eyelids matted together with mottled blood, you would have looked into blank holes. If you had lifted up his arms, you would have felt no resistance. You'd have just heard the thud as it hit the table when you let it go. And you would have walked away from that morbid scene muttering to yourself, the wages of sin truly is death. But, somewhere before dawn, on a Sunday morning, a spike-torn hand twitched, a blood-crusted eyelid opened, And the breath of God came blowing into that cave. And a new creation flashed into reality. God was not simply delivering Jesus and with Him all of us from death. He was vindicating Jesus and with Him all of us. By resurrecting Jesus from the dead, God was reaffirming what He had said over the Jordan waters. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased God the Father was declaring Jesus to be the Son of God in power. What can break the chain? Who can break the chain of law, sin, and death? Only Jesus. Jesus alone breaks that chain because he's born as a human under the law and he dies. He's born under the law and he dies, but that middle link, he never sinned once in his life. Not one thought that was sinful not one action that was sinful not one deed not one attitude never sinning so that middle link in that chain of law sin and death is taken out and therefore we have no more death to fear because he has broken the chain of sin and the bondage that we have to death under the law he obeyed perfectly and at the cross all of our sin was put upon him that's why we celebrated Good Friday, put into his account, so he was punished in our place. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus redeemed us from the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Under the law, he never sinned, and yet he still died Because he took all of our sin upon himself and was punished as if he were a sinner like you and me. But he didn't stay dead. No, he didn't. Jesus says on Good Friday, it's finished. He goes into the tomb. He pays the full punishment that we deserve. And the Father says on Sunday morning, it is finished. It's done. The payment has been made and you have been taken out of the tomb, raised forever to newness of life. So now death is defeated because sin has been paid in full. The law has been kept perfectly in its entirety. This is the only way that we can have victory. That's why Paul says, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sting has lost its sting. Death has lost its death. And there is nothing to fear. Just like Jesus said in John 11, though you die, you'll never die. If you believe in me, you'll die, but you'll never truly die. But I, I need to say only believers do not have a reason to fear death. The implication is, for believers, there's no reason to fear death. But for non-believers, there is absolutely a reason to fear death. Because Jesus' payment for sin has not been placed into your account. You have not trusted Him for salvation. You're trusting in some other way. Maybe your good works will outweigh your bad works. Maybe you believe in karma. Maybe you believe that God's just going to grade on a curve. That's not possible. That's not biblical. That's why you need to believe the gospel message. You need to believe in Jesus Christ and then and only then will you be fearless in the face of death. Death will have no hold over you. You say, well, what is the gospel? The gospel, let me give it to you in five points. The gospel is, number one, a message about historical events. The gospel is a message about historical events. There are things that happened. Jesus died on a cross. Before dying, he lived on this earth. That's a historical fact that's provable by other books outside of the Bible, the other books that wouldn't even care about promoting Christianity, but they prove back in Jesus' day that Jesus was a real person and he died on the cross and he was raised from the dead. Historical events. We're not, Christians do not believe in fairy tales, made up things. We don't believe in things that are just contrary to what is truly historically real. So number one, it's historical events. The gospel is a message about historical events. Number two, the gospel is a message about what those historical events achieved, what they accomplished. Why did Jesus come to earth at all? Why did he live a sinless life? Why did he die on the cross? Why did he rise from the dead? Messages message is about historical events, but not just about the events. It's about what they accomplished. What they accomplished is Jesus taking our sin, putting it in himself on the cross, being punished in our place so that we can take Jesus' righteousness, put it into our account so that we can be treated by the Father as if we've never sinned. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel has achieved at the cross. But it doesn't end there. Number three, the gospel is a message about the transfer of, of what Jesus purchased at the cross, what those historical events achieved, the transfer of those to us. So number 1 historical events, number 2 what those historical events achieved, number 3 what how how to transfer those historical events to us. Some people think that the way that we transfer sinless perfection to us is try hard But if you understand what Jesus accomplished when he says, it is finished, I've done all the work, then to do work, to transfer his work to us, nullifies the work. It doesn't make sense. It's absolutely illogical. We work to get his work? No. We trust in his work. We don't do anything. We trust in his work and his work alone to be saved. If we work, it just destroys the works that Jesus worked. Therefore, the message of Christianity, this is why Christianity is... The only religion, and I don't like calling it that because it's not a set of rules of do's and don'ts, it's a relationship with Jesus Christ, but it's the only religion that says you do nothing to get to God. Every other religion says God's somewhere up on some mountain and He's given you a road with rules and regulations to get to Him. And maybe He'll meet you halfway, maybe He'll, he'll even go 99% of the way, but you have to do something to get to Him. Christianity is the only religion that says you do nothing. Even the faith that it takes to cling to Christ and to trust Him to say, I am a sinner. I am deserving of punishment and death. I need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. Even the faith to cling to Him, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that's a gift in and of itself by God, won and purchased at the cross and at the empty tomb. So the gospel is a message about historical events. The gospel is a message about what those historical events achieved. The gospel is a message about the transfer of those achievements to us. The gospel, number four, is a message about the good things that are now true about us because those achievements have been applied to our account, who are forgiven. We never have to worry about being punished by God ever. We're given freedom from sin, from guilt, from shame. We're given forgiveness. We're given reconciliation with God. And we're given a new heart that now loves to obey and loves God where we once hated God and wanted to do our own thing. But it doesn't end there. Most often the gospel proclamation ends there. As people share it, they just say, you have been forgiven, pardoned, no more sin in your account, praise God. It's true, but it doesn't end there. Message number five about the gospel. Number one, historical events. Number two, what those events achieve. Number three, how those events are transferred, how those achievements are transferred to us. Number four, all the good things, now that those achievements have been transferred to us, all the good things that are ours in Christ. But number five, the gospel message is a message about the glorious God himself as our final and ultimate and eternal treasure. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, we looked at this on Good Friday. Christ died for the ungodly, the just for the unjust. Why? So that he would forgive us? Yes, but no, that's not the end. That we wouldn't feel guilt, so that we wouldn't feel shame? No, that's not the ultimate reason. What's the ultimate reason that Peter says? He dies the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. He wants a relationship with us. And so those historical events, he achieved in those events the means by which we can now have a reconciled relationship. If you do not know Jesus Christ, If you don't trust Him for salvation, then you have reason to be afraid this morning. You have reason to fear death. You see coronavirus happening around you and you might think, what am I going to do? Maybe even if I exist, you're still going to die one day. You have reason to be afraid because death still has a sting for you because you are under the law, you've broken the law, and you will bear the penalty for breaking it. But there is one who has come to make possible forgiveness, salvation, and a right relationship with the God that you've offended. And His name is Jesus. Would you come today in faith, clinging to Him, acknowledging your sin, turning to Christ for salvation, turning from sin, saying, God, I need help. I cannot pardon myself. I cannot become good enough myself. I need the work of another. If you have not done that, today is the day to repent, to turn to Christ. Today is the day to trust in Jesus for salvation. And then you won't have to fear death and you will have the most satisfying life in Christ. Oh, it's going to be difficult as you're battling sin, but you'll have the deepest satisfaction you could possibly imagine as you are in a right reconciled relationship with the God who made you and who loves you. Paul says that because of Jesus' resurrection, number one, we will be raised as well. Number two, death itself has been destroyed. And finally, number three, life is not in vain. Life is not in vain. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, life is not in vain. Verse 58, Therefore, because of everything that Jesus has achieved in our place, Paul says, there's something for us to, to, to do. There's someone for us to be. We have to be different because we know the resurrection is true. We have to live for the glory of God. He says it this way, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. He just says three very simple things. Number one, be, be steadfast, immovable. Hang on the truth of the resurrection. When death stares you in the face and threatens to take away all that you hold dear, just keep going. Don't stop. Be a rock. Be a tree that's uh, roots are firmly planted into the ground. It's the only thing that stands after the hurricane of death. You don't have to be afraid. Be steadfast. Be immovable. I love Pilgrim's Progress when Christian and hopeful or at the waters of death. They have to pass through the waters. There's not a bridge over it. There's not a way around it. They have to go through. And the ground underneath them is only as stable as they're trusting in the promises of God to be with them in the storm, to be with them in the waters. So hopeful is excited because he knows if I cross through the waters of death, I'm gonna get to the celestial city and I cannot wait to be there. And so he starts running into that ocean of water, the waves of death. He says, I can't wait. And he's able to bound across unafraid. Christian, however, is terrified because he forgets the promises of God. He forgets the resurrection of Jesus Christ and therefore he is movable. He is shakable and he struggles and he remembers in the middle of the waters, behold, I will be with you. I'll be with you when you pass through the waters. And that Jesus' blood had been placed into his account covering his sins, covering everything and drawing him in perfection to Jesus so he knows I'm safe and then he feels the ground and then he moves forward. The river of death is waiting for all of us but it's a river that can be crossed with confidence because Jesus has defeated death and has been raised from the dead. Number two, Paul says, we need to do something. B. Steadfast and immovable. And, number two, abound in the work of the Lord. Abound in the work of the Lord. Do the work of the Lord. Labor to the point of exhaustion is what this word means. Use all of your energy for the sake of God's glory and his gospel going forth to the nations. The beauty of what Paul says is because there is a resurrection from the dead, what we do in life can move on into eternity. C.T. Studd said it the best way possible. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. But because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we can know that life is not lived in vain. So many people think, if this is all that I have, I have to leave an impact, leave a legacy, do something so that my life doesn't just be, it's not forgotten. And Jesus says, oh, your life might be forgotten in this life, but it will never be forgotten in the next. Only what's done for Christ will last. And finally, he says this, knowing Knowing So be steadfast and movable. Number two, abound in the work of the Lord. Number three, know that your toil is not in vain. Setting your mind and settling in your mind that Jesus has been raised from the dead and has conquered death, this is wonderfully energizing to know that our toil and our labor is not in vain. When death shows me that all of my works will be destroyed, then I want to do work that will last forever. And only what is done for Christ will last. Nothing that I do is in vain if it's done for Jesus because it ultimately has no end point. It's significant and its ripple effect goes on and on and on. And Paul says, live for that because you know there's a resurrection. By the way, this also changes how we live today. This changes the way we live today. Since we know there is a resurrection, since we know there is a a, a resurrection for us coming, we can live life differently today instead of hoarding everything and and hoping that we never lose any of it. We know that this life is just the appetizer. This is just the precursor to the, the meal that's coming. Jesus demonstrates this in his life. Remember in his earthly ministry, he remember how we studied the Gospels, all those different signs that John gives us? He gives us signs to tell us that we should believe in Jesus. But the signs are not just impressive displays of power. They're symbols of something deeper. They're showing us not just that we should believe in Jesus and why we should believe in him, but also what we should be believing in him for. Remember John chapter 2, first, wedding, or first miracle that Jesus ever does. It's at the wedding in Cana. What, what's the point of that account? What's happening? There's a feast that's ending too soon. And Jesus, through his miracle work and power, says, "No, it's not going to end now." Think of John 6. you remember? Jesus feeds the 5,000, which is probably more like the 25,000. He feeds these thousands and thousands of people, and they say, "We love the bread keep on giving us bread." Jesus says, "I don't want to give you something that is just going to fail. It's just going to be fleeting. You eat it and it's gone. I am the bread of life that's come to give you satisfaction eternally, not just here and now, something that you can lose temporally. John chapter 4, he tells the woman at the well, don't seek the water that you drink and it's gone and it runs out. I am the living water. If you drink from me, you're never going to go thirsty again. And then obviously John chapter 11, he who believes in me, though he dies, he'll never die. This is at the tomb of Lazarus. I'm going to raise him from the, the dead. What are all these doing? They're all pointing to the fact that Jesus has come through His death and His resurrection to give us something more than this life. So we can live this life knowing it's not in vain. We can live this life enjoying what God has given to us to enjoy and then knowing that the things that we do for Him will last on into eternity. My friends, if we get everything that we want out of life, temporally, physically, if we get everything that we want, we will end up just losing it in the end. That's why Jesus says, I want to give you eternal life. Eternal life is beyond the reach of death. It's beyond. Death tries to grab at it, but can't reach it. We can totally enjoy the things of this life, knowing that they're just those appetizers, and that the main feast is yet to come, and that Jesus Christ always saves the best wine for last. And we can labor for him, knowing that our labor and our toil is never in vain. Three resurrection realities. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we will be raised too. We'll be changed just like his glorified body was. Number two, death is destroyed forever. And we don't have to be afraid of it. Swallowed up in victory with no more sting to cause us pain. And finally, number three, life is no longer a vain enterprise. It has meaning And every day, as we glorify God and seek first His kingdom, we know that our work is never in vain. What is our only hope and our only comfort in life and in death? It's our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. May you stand in the power of Jesus Christ this morning, our resurrected Savior. He is risen indeed. Let's celebrate that today and every day for the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. God bless you.